And I do want to let you know that we are going to be talking about Easter this morning. Uh, we've been in a sermon series called The Good News. We've been talking about resurrection power. Uh, we've been walking through you know, biblical accounts of resurrection because even though we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, even though we remember that on one specific day in the spring every year, that there were other resurrections, right? There was the resurrection of Jairus' daughter where Jesus shows up and he raises her from the dead. Very quick, uh, very instant, that moment. Then there's the widow's son who they're literally having a funeral. So they're walking out of, you know, they're walking out of the funeral home. They're walking out of Lindsay's downtown Paducah. Jesus shows up, funeral home director goes, man, not again. Uh, man, not again. And sure enough, the, the widow's son is raised back to life, the Bible says. And then last week we talked about Lazarus, how Lazarus was a special situation because he had been dead for three days. He had been dead not only three days, but four days, right? He had been dead for four days in the tomb. I like how the KJV puts it. It says that surely by now he stinketh, amen? And you don't know what stinketh is. It's where you pull back the diaper and you're like, yeah, I mean, it is stinketh, amen? That's how you know it is bad off. And so it said he stinketh by that time. But of course, Jesus shows up. Jesus calls the resurrection power. Lazarus walks out. And at that moment on, we're told that everything began to change for this Jesus of Nazareth. Because it says, as soon as Lazarus was resurrected, they began to plot to kill him. And it wasn't to plot to kill him because he had been working miracles. It was they plotted to kill him because he was disrupting the status quo. Amen. He was pulling power away from the religious community. He was pulling power away from even what some people argue the political community. Because Jesus was not part of a political party. Jesus was not part of a religious situation going on. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He was Jesus. And because of that, he pulled power away from both those establishments. And so it came to be that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, which are the ruling bodies of the religious power there in Jerusalem, they decided we have to kill this man. You think about this. You think about how Jesus was the only perfect person in human history. I know you might be thinking, my little baby's precious. Your little baby's a hellion, amen? Uh, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. You might be thinking, they ain't done nothing wrong. They are. They bite people, amen? Uh, so do understand. But Jesus was perfect. The Bible says that he was perfect and innocent in all that he did, in the sense where he could walk through a street and never lust after a woman. The Bible says he could have anger and not let it lead to sin. The Bible says that he did miraculous things. He went around and he raised the dead. He went around and walked on water. This man shows up at a party. The Taco Bell box is empty. He says, fish filet for everybody. Amen. I kid you not. Like Jesus was legit. I mean, he did a lot of things that were crazy and caught a lot of attention. And it led to them wanting to kill him. And so sure enough, he has the Passover meal with his Friends, his 12 best friends, and we're told in the Word of God that Judas Iscariot leaves that meeting and goes and gets the silver and betrays the Son of God, and Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he's praying there, soldiers show up. They've got knives, they've got swords, they've got torches, and, there's, and we're, we're told that there's a man there named by the name of Malchus, who's one of the chief priest's servants, and Peter says, you will not take my Lord, and swings at him and cuts off his ear. Jesus picks it up like Mr. Potato Head, pops that bad boy back on. That's what the Bible says, as it pops the ear back on. And they came to take him with violence, but yet Jesus had never led with violence. 
They take him through on Thursday night, they run him through a mock trial where they literally drag him before Pilate, who's the Roman governor at the time, over in charge of Jerusalem. And they take him to Herod, who is the king. I say king very lightly because he's been placed there by Rome, even himself. And he is the king at the time. And you have the Pilate and Herod. He goes back and forth, back and forth. He goes through a mock trial where no witnesses are allowed to testify on Jesus' account. Where literally Pilate turns to the people and he tells them, I find no fault with the man. I find nothing that this man is guilty of. And yet the crowd, the same crowd that just moments ago, days ago, had shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, just a couple days later, they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So what does Pilate do? Pilate's in a rock and a hard place. He's in a rock and a hard place. Why? Because the people he's decided to govern are rebelling even against him in that moment. So what does he do? He takes a bowl and he shows them. He washes their hands and says, this blood is not on me, but it's on you. And the Bible says they have him beaten. Pilate does as well. They have him beaten, have him scourged, which is they beat him with a cat of nine tails where he takes upwards of 39 lashes on the back. The Bible says that into that point, by the time he leaves the beating, that he is unrecognizable as a man. He looks like a bloody piece of meat. They strip him naked. They parade him through the streets and they put his clothes back on him and then they gamble for his clothes right before they're fixing to drop him in the ground on the cross. They nail him to the tree. They drop him in the ground and the Bible says that every joint becomes loose in his body because of the force of the jolt of the drop of the cross in the ground. He's crucified among thieves, among robbers, among rebels. They begin to revile him. At one point though, one of them says to the other thief, do you not fear God? Do you not understand that we are getting what we deserve? That this man, though, has done nothing wrong? And he turns and looks at Jesus and he says, what? Remember me on this day. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. He makes that promise to the thief. And we're told as the hours weighing on that he begins to thirst. He asks for thirst. They offer him vinegar on the end of a spear. We're told that the sky becomes dark. We're told that earth begins to shake. We're told that lightning begins to flash. We're told that literally it is a period of darkness that can be felt, the Bible says. And you might think, well, that's just the Bible. No, we're actually told in ancient cultures that on that day, believe it or not, around that same day, it got dark all over the world. Pretty profound, if you ask me. It got dark on the whole entire earth on that day. And we're told that he says, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're told he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. And he bows his head, and he dies, and he gives up the ghost. Moments after that, they come by because it is fixing to be Sabbath. It's fixing to be the Lord. It's fixing to be Sunday for them. So it's supposed to be the day of rest, the day of Sabbath, which was on Saturday for the Jews. They come around, they begin to break the thieves' legs. Because with the legs being broken, you could not push up to breathe. Many people think you died of blood loss on the cross. No, you died because you suffocate. You could not hold your body up to breathe. So you literally had to push up to breathe. So they break their legs so they would die very quickly. So as they come to the thieves, they break their legs with a bat, usually with a ram of some kind. They literally hit them in the knee to shatter them. They get to Jesus and he's already dead. To prove that he's already dead, a Roman soldier grabs a spear, shoves it in his side. 
shoves it in his side to say that it went all the way up into his very heart. The Romans knew exactly how to kill a man. They pushed the spear all the way up to his heart. And the, blood, and the Bible says that blood mingled with water comes out, running down the spear, running down his side. The soldiers who are around the cross, they all look around and say, surely this man was the Son of God. They take him down. They take the two thieves. They roll them in a mass grave. I'm going to be very honest with you. That's what they did. They, they, they literally took their bodies down, naked men, threw them in a mass grave. They take Jesus down. A wealthy man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, very, very wealthy man, has decided to donate his wealthy tomb to this man named Jesus. They take him down. The women are crying. The women are distraught. A man by the name of Nicodemus and Joseph take Jesus. They give him Jewish ritual rites of burial. They wrap his body in white linen cloth. They put spices in between the layers to cover up the smell because, once again, they did not have embalming liquid. They did not have a funeral home. They did not have cremation ceremonies. They literally put spices on the body to cover up the smell of decay. They wrap Jesus in the white cloth of burial. They wrap his head separately. They place a napkin over their face so their body was wrapped and their head was wrapped all by itself. They put him in the tomb. They put him in Joseph's tomb and the religious community says, wait, 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 wait. What if his disciples come and get his body? What if a rebellion breaks out? So they station a guard. Not only do they station a guard, but they roll a massive stone, huge stone. Weighing hundreds of pounds, where literally Roman soldiers placed it there. Pilate puts seals on the stone that if any man or woman is located among the tomb who did not belong there, they would be put to death. That's Friday. That's Friday. Saturday, guess what? The tomb's still sealed. Soldiers are playing games. Maybe one of them's playing Gallica. Amen. Uh, maybe they're playing Clash of Clans. Maybe they're TikToking. Hey, hey, tomb's here. Whatever they're doing, guess what? Tomb's still sealed. Tomb's still shut. But the Word of God says that on the first day of the week, things began to change. And that's where we pick up in the rest of the story. In Luke's gospel, it tells us this, Luke chapter 24. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. If you have a Bible, you can turn it with us. If you don't, we'll have it on screen for you. Taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So I want to let you know that the resurrection account in the Bible has four primary sources. Four primary sources for the resurrection account. We call those the Gospels. We call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of those accounts are first-hand accounts. Matthew and John are both first-hand accounts, which means those men were among the disciples. Those men were men who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Those men had seen every miracle he had done. Those men had literally been with him up to the moments he had died. But make no mistake about it, whenever Jesus was crucified, there was only one disciple with him. The Bible says it was John. John the Beloved. John was there who wrote the Gospel of John. You might be like, well, who is Luke and who is Mark? 
You know, Mark is John Mark. He is a guy who comes years later and writes an investigation report talking about interviewing eyewitnesses about the events that transpired during Jesus' life. And you're like, that's pretty cool. What about Luke? Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. He is a physician who does the same. He comes back and he investigates all the reports about Jesus and publishes his own gospel, the gospel according to Luke. And that's why we got these four biblical accounts. Two eyewitnesses and two that are investigative reporters, so to speak, that gather information that give us the account of everything that happens. But here's what we do know. Even though there's four different accounts, that the truth is the same in all four accounts. The truth's always the same. We're told that every event, every event that talks about the resurrection has these same details. It says it was on the first day of the week. I'm not a smart man, but first day of the week is Sunday, right? It is Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It is the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day. And it was sunrise or at dawn. So it was very early in the morning. So they came early in the morning and were told that there were women. There were women. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, uh, the mother of James. There was all these other women. There was a group of women, and they were coming because they had just been to a Central Oils convention, amen. And so they show up, and they've got, you know, they've got all their stuff, and they've got all their, their packages of oils and spices. They're getting ready to put even more, more spices on Jesus' body. So why? So he would smell good. So they come with pails in hand. They were in mourning, obviously. They probably weren't too cheerful, but they had knew they had these spices. So they came as a pack, as a group of women ready to pay homage to their dead king. This group shows up. And of course, they even have conversation among themselves. On the way, we're told they have conversation. They say, we're ready with our spices, but how are we going to get in the tomb? Because there's a stone. They even talk among themselves. We don't have a way to get inside the tomb. Surely, what to ask one of the soldiers to do, they begin to talk among themselves saying, we have no way of getting to the tomb. And so you can imagine as they walk the garden path, they get to the tomb and the stone is rolled away. The stone is rolled away. Not only is the stone rolled away, we are told, but when the stone was rolled away, there's an earthquake. Not only was there an earthquake, not only was the stone rolled away, but the Roman soldiers are passed out. They got knocked out, right? Tyson, baby, they gone. They sleeping. They are, I don't mean they physically got knocked out. I've got to clarify, that's just a reference. Uh, so they are knocked out. I mean, they're knocked out, passed out. The Bible says they were like dead men. They were laying there, right? Think about like, you know, Jan off the office when Michael's going to work. I mean, she knocked out. Uh, I mean, she, you know, just knocked out. Pass, slick out. Gone. And it says these women are perplexed. They're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. What's going to happen? You have to remember, the stone was placed there by the Romans. Massive stone. The stone was placed there by official Roman authority. Pilate had said, seal the stone. Literally, if you would have taken the stone away, you were dead. You were a dead man or a dead woman. Do you understand that there was... All these events happened, and yet we're told also... Pick up with me in the narrative. I'm just going to read it. You can see the text here. I want you to see this. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while you were at Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So look at this. Luke tells us that, hey, when they show up, there's angels there. There's angels, and they're in dazzling apparel. Now, I do want to let you know, when you think of biblical angels, you have these big, large wings, and they're, you know, fluffing their wings. That is not the way the Bible describes angels. It says these were men. These were just common men, but they were in dazzling apparel, right? So they were shiny, and they were very, very different than everything else around them, because why? They are creatures of eternity. They are creatures of heaven. They don't belong in our situation, right? So they are literally glowing individuals, and the Bible says that when they show up, they don't say, hey, (laughs) good to see you. I love how they just cut right to the chase and say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that comical? The women are there, (gasps) they're freaking out, and the guy's like, calm down. Why do you seek the living among the dead? For he is not here, for he is risen. Just like he told you, he would do these things. You might be thinking, well, that's not that big a deal. But once again, let's read Matthew's account. Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. That's dazzling if you ask me. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So they were dead. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where they have laid, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and you will see him. See, I have told you. So once again, this should not shock us that they are different accounts because they are four different sources. If four of us saw a car accident, four of us would have four different takes, but the same thing would be true, we saw a car accident. But in this account, there's four different accounts, and Matthew says, guess what, it's a little, there's little details here that are a little different. Mark's account, let's read Mark's account. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robes, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Do you pay attention, church? Three words are the same in all counts. He ain't here. He is risen. He has risen. All three accounts have those three words. He is not here. See the place where they've laid him and go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee where you will see him. So pay attention here to what they're saying. They're saying, he gone, y'all. He gone. Blink, he gone, right? I mean, he gone. Not only is he gone, but look what they say. This Jesus. You know what's a big, big conspiracy right now among the historical community? They're saying, well, there was a Jesus who they got confused with another Jesus, and he hadn't been buried yet, and they were at his tomb. That's some other Jesus' tomb. Look what it says, Jesus of Nazareth. So they're very, very explicit here. They say, the same Jesus who was with you, the same Jesus who was crucified, the same Jesus who walked with you, he is gone. He's not here. He is not here. All three accounts are eyewitness reports, are gathered from eyewitness reports. All three of them are saying the same thing. Blink, he gone. He is gone. He is out of here. He's not in the tomb anymore. And you might be thinking, well, you know, 
That's all cool. What's that got to do with anything? Let's see what happens here. Let's keep going with the text. Luke chapter 24. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who told them these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Let me tell you something. If the Bible was made up, why would you put that in there? Why would you put that? You ever been there when somebody was telling you a story? You're like, oh, yeah, right. I mean, that's what it says. It says the women came and told the disciples, and they thought, you cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They thought, y'all saw that on TikTok. I mean, you know what I mean? They thought, you, you lost your mind. That cannot be true. Let me ask you this. If it's true, I mean, if it's not true, why include that? On the other side, in this culture, if it is true, why would you base everything on a woman's testimony when a woman's testimony wasn't even welcome in court? But that's exactly what the Bible does. That's exactly what God does. Why? Because he wants you to know he's not messing around. He's got nothing to hide. He's going with the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help himself. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. And that's exactly what happens there. It says, they believe, they did not believe him. He's dead. Jesus is dead. I'm telling you, maybe John even spoke up, I saw it with my own eyes. They stabbed him. They literally took him down. Nicodemus and Joseph buried him. I saw it. Do not lie to me. Don't give me hope. But in John's account, he says a little bit differently. John says this, look what he says in verse number 2 of John 20. So she ran, this is Mary, Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, remember, John's writing his first ten account, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So she's saying, guess what, somebody robbed the grave. Some, they don't believe it. They, guys, how much clearer does it be? Some of y'all are thinking, Lord, I need a sign. Lord shows you a sign, I need another sign. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you're thinking, I don't need that sign. How much more of a sign can you get the two guys in dazzling apparel showing up saying, he gone. I mean, you know what I mean? Like literally, how much more? But they still don't believe it. They're thinking somebody has stole his body. So Peter went out from the disciples, and they were going towards the tomb. Pay attention to verse number four. You know how I know the Bible's true? Because verse number four in John. Look what he says here. He says, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Don't you love that humble brag? Like John saying, I'm writing my own story. Peter was slow. <laughs> Think about that. Like you, I, tell me I don't see myself in the text, amen? Like, this is almost like, you could tell somebody's telling you something like, Liam, yesterday, Liam, we were over at my sister's house having uh, Easter dinner, amen, praise God. Uh, we were there having Easter dinner at my sister's house, and Liam was going out by the road, Lindsay's like, hey, don't go by the road. Uh, she was saying it way, way more violent than that, uh, amen, praise God. And she said, don't go by the road, and I ran over there, and I was like, Liam, come on, bro, we ain't supposed to be playing by the road. And he said, no. He said, I want to go play by the road. I said, son? I said, uh, I'm going to go, you, you ain't playing by the road. He said, I will tell my daddy and he will whoop you. <laughs> and I was thinking, I know your daddy. He did whoop me a long time ago, amen. But I don't think he's going to whoop me. It's almost, you can see the character of John in this passage. He was running, but I caught him. 
and I reached the tomb first. I love that verse, guys. I'm telling you. Look what he says here. Verse number five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. So John arrives first. Now, you have to pay attention here. You have to pay attention to the way the text is laying it out. It says the women showed up. The angel rolled the, tomb, the stone away. You follow me? The guards were passed out. Ooh! I mean, they were gone. It says the women did not go in the tomb. So the tomb's still empty. It's vacant. But nobody has crossed into the crime scene yet, right? There's the tape there. And nobody's went beyond that. So some of y'all, they weren't your neighbors. You'd be like, what are they doing over there? So literally, nobody's been in the tomb yet. John runs. It says he gets there first. It says he leans in, but it doesn't break the threshold. And all he can see from looking from the outside in is he sees the linen cloth. He sees the very burial garments of Jesus there. So let's pick up in the text once again. I'm very big on you reading it for yourself because I want you to see I'm not making this stuff up. Then Peter came. In second place, amen. John's life first. If you're not first, you're last. Amen. He, Peter came following him, went into the tomb. So remember, this is the first account where somebody's going into the tomb. Peter came following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by himself. Can we all just agree with something here? Pay attention here. John shows up. He peeks in. Doesn't go in the tomb. Peter comes up. John, man. He goes in. He says he sees the linen cloth laying there. Over to the side... The face cloth, which has been on Jesus' face, is lying there and folded up. Can we all just agree with something? If thieves bring it, break in your house, they don't clean. Like, I don't know if you've ever been robbed before. We've been robbed before. Growing up, we got robbed one time uh, at our house in Muhlenberg County. And we didn't come in. Mom said, my mom said, ooh, look at these lines. <laughs> my mom didn't say, somebody did the laundry. My mom didn't come in and be like, somebody hung up our clothes. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like the three bears, right? Somebody been sitting in my chair. Like, literally, when thieves show up, can we all agree, they don't fold clothes. They don't come in like, let's just tidy up, just in case. But the Bible says that the face cloth was put off to the side, folded up. When you're in a hurry, you don't fold clothes. I guarantee you all y'all got clothes in the dryer right now. <laughs> guarantee every single one of you kids especially do. You're thinking, what's a hanger? Because you ain't hung one up in a long time. You put it in there, wrinkle cycle, baby. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Because when you're in a hurry, you don't fold nothing. The Bible says, guess what? Jesus' face cloth was lying there off to the side, neatly folded. Look what happens here. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first. <laughs> Do you see it? Once again, he can't let it go. He's like, I'm quicker, faster, stronger. I've reached the tomb first. I love it. I'll tell you, the Bible's so good. You just, I mean, you've got to read it. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw, and he believed. Do you hear that? 
He said, nobody else believed. I believed. Peter, he didn't believe. Mary, please, I believed. <laughs> Look what it says here. You know, I know he's lying because the next couple verses. He saw and believed. As for yet, uh, as, for as yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You know how I know John didn't believe? He went back to his house. That's how I know. Let me tell you something. I know he really was writing that in there. I believe. But he really was like, I didn't believe. Because <laughs> he went back to his home. Because let me tell you something. If you really believed this stuff, you wouldn't have went back to your home. You would have been looking for him. You would have been thinking, he, he gone somewhere. Jesus. You there, Jesus? Even playing hide and seek with him through the garden, but he didn't believe him. He didn't believe him. The Bible explicitly talks about how Peter was one of the ones who was told first. Did you notice that? It says the women went and they found John and they also found Peter. Do you notice Mark's gospel said that? So they not only went and found the disciples, but they went and found Peter. Why did they go find Peter? Now you might be thinking they went and found Peter because Peter was the leader. Now, I could argue with that. I could go with that. I could go with that rhythm that Peter was the leader because he was the leader. We had seen him lead in a lot of ways. We'd seen him saying, I'm taking somebody's ear. I mean, you know what I mean? We'd seen him at the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, Lord, do you want me to make tents for everybody? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we, we had seen Peter do some amazing things. Peter actually is the only other person in human history who walked on water, right? That means yes. Even though he sunk, he did walk on water temporarily. So Peter, you could say he was the leader. That's why they wanted to find Peter. But I think, personally, I think the authors are trying to get you to see something that's very, very important. Because you have to remember the last time Jesus and Peter saw each other was not a good time. You see, the moments leading up to Jesus' death, Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this night's even over with. And Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. I'll die for you. I, I can assure you, John, the fast John, he might deny you. You know, Andrew, he might deny you. My brother from the same mother, right? He might deny you. Bartholomew, he gone to, but not me. As for me and my house, we believe. We believe all the time, Lord. We believe 24-7, 365. We are never going to doubt you. But yet the Bible says that three different occasions, people came to him and he denied he was even a Christian. He denied the man. One woman even said, I know you're with him because your speech even betrays you because you have the speak and dialect of a Galilean. And he told her, I swear to you, I don't know the man. Three times he denies Christ. Three times he literally says, I don't know you. And the Bible says the last time he did it, him and Jesus made eye contact. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out, he was distraught, he was destroyed. Why? Because his whole life, guys, for the last three and a half years, he had been building his case that I will follow you, I will follow you, I will follow you. But isn't it amazing how your whole life can be used to build a case, but in a moment you can lose it all. You can lose it all. He lost it all. So Peter is mentioned, why? Because you have to remember, the last time he saw Jesus in the flesh, he had denied him three times. So he goes to the tomb, and you know what he's thinking? 
The words on the screen, he's thinking this first point. This is my first point. I promise I've got a little bit more. Uh, He goes to the tomb. He's thinking this very first point. Can it be true? Can it be true that he is who he said he was? Can it be true that I'll have a chance to apologize? Can it be true that I will finally get a moment to look and see if he really is the Messiah? Can it be true? Can it be true? Because he wasn't the only one. Guess what? Everybody in Jerusalem was hoping that Jesus was who he says he was, who he was his disciple. The walk to Emmaus, I'm going to read the text very quickly for you because I do have a lot of text to get through um, very, very quickly, I promise, though. Is Luke 24, 13 through 17, 27. I'm just going through the text. You can see here. The very day two of them going to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other, all, all these things that had happened. That was talking about all the resurrection. They were talking about the crucifixion. They were talking about everything. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So they were walking. Jesus shows up, starts walking with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them said, Cle- Cleopas um, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor? who does not know the things that have happened these days? So he probably looked at Jesus bro, where have you been? Do you not recognize what's happened here? I love Jesus. You see the humor of Jesus. Look what he says here in verse number 19. Jesus said to them, what things? What things? And he said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, pay attention to that, a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, and we had hoped. Verse 21, pay attention to that. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yet, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company, amazed us. They at the tomb early this morning when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with them went up to the tomb and we found it just as the women had said, but they, but him, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken what is, not nece- what is not necessary that Christ, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I love this story. I love the story because it's so, so true and it's so real. They turn and look at Jesus and say, Bro, do you not realize what's happened here? And they're like, we had this man named Jesus. We thought he was a prophet. We thought he was a magician. We thought he was crazy cool. We were all following him, and they killed him. Let me tell you something. You might have a, a lot of hope in people, but when somebody take your hope and beat it and bruise it and crucify it, you'll lose hope. So let me ask you this, church, as we begin to walk into the last part of our section here. What did you come here hoping for? What did you come here hoping for? Because make no mistake about it, we all came here hoping for different things. We all came here hoping maybe to catch a glimpse of a resurrected king. Maybe you came here because you were hoping somebody would be able to help you with your marriage. 
Maybe you were here and you're thinking, I, need, I was hoping somebody would help me with my kids. I was hoping somebody would help me with my finances. I was hoping somebody would help me with my loneliness. I was hoping somebody would help me with my anxiety. I was hoping somebody would help me with my drug and alcohol addiction. I was hoping that somebody helped me and keep me from sleeping around with other people. I was hoping I would feel significance. I was hoping I would feel purpose. I was hoping that I would get up in the morning and think there's something worth living for. Because I promise you, we all wandered through those doors this morning hoping for something. And you may have came to God before. You may have came to a God before. Let me rephrase that. Thinking, well, this God will fix my issues. This God will fix my physical ailments. This God has promised for me to have luxurious wealth. This God has promised these things. And you've went and tried to worship that God and this God. And you've maybe tried other religions. But at the end of the day, you have just found more yourself more empty than if you ever started that journey to begin with. And you tried to fill it with all these other things. You thought, well, if I could just work really hard... If I can just get a really good job and, and I can pour my mind and my strength into my job, then maybe I'll have significance and I'll feel better about myself. But every day you wake up every morning dreading going to that job. And you might be thinking, well, if I could just marry the hottest, smoking fine woman or man I possibly can, then that'll make me feel good. And then you notice as time begins to happen, that looks begin to fade like a flower. Why? Because death comes for us all. And you began to notice that when their self-worth was going down, your own self-worth began to go down. And you thought, well, maybe if I have some kids, kids can fix our marriage, kids can fix me, kids can maybe fix everything. And you had kids, and you realize that they bear your image, and they remind you of your shortcomings every single day. As little mirrors reflecting to you what you're really good at, but also what you're really bad at. And you thought, well, maybe I can just join a church. Maybe I'll go to church and, and I'll be in the kids program and, and I'll work with the choir and I'll do all these other things and I'll get baptized so many times the tadpoles know who I am and I'll be a good person. I'll sell Girl Scout cookies. I'll go around and, and I'll say peace, not war. And I'll go around and do all these crazy things. At the end of the day, you lie down every night and you still feel empty. Because what you were looking for and hoping for, you did not find. And you look around and everybody here and you're thinking, do you not know how I feel? You get mad at your spouse and bite them and devour them because you know the problem with your marriage is you. You're the problem with it. You know, I can tell you the problem with you, he, he, they're on your driver's license. I can tell you the problem with you, it's the person you see in the mirror every day. It's you. Because you come looking for all this hope, you come looking for all these things thinking, I've got to fix myself. I've got to fix myself. You're thinking, I've got to discover what's true. So you try to fix it in all other ways, but let me tell you, the bottom line is, the problem with you is you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. And you might be like, well, I'm going to get educated. That'll fix my problem. No, because then you just become an educated sinner. And you might be like, well, no, I'm just going to make myself look good. Then you become a pretty sinner. Amen? But you're still a sinner, and you might think, well, I'm going to get money and get wealth and get fame, and then you just become a financially stable sinner. And you might be like, well, I'm going to get married. Then you become a husband or wife that's a sinner. You might be like, I'm going to have kids. And then you become a father or a mother, and you're still a sinner because the big problem you cannot fix. You can't go find it somewhere in the, in the bottom of a bottle. You can't go find it in the bottom of a pill. You can't go find it in somebody else's bed. You can't even find it in most churches these days. 
Ooh, I hate to say that. Because you can only find truth in one place. You can only find truth in one place. One reality. One truth. And it ain't on Facebook. Let me promise y'all. Some of y'all see me on Facebook thinking, he had more hair. I did. It's a lie. You see things on Facebook like, I'll share this picture of Obi-Wan Kenobi and that means I'm going to heaven. See, all this stuff on Instagram and all these filters, and at the end of the day, the filter cannot cover up that you're trying to filter something out of your life that wasn't in it. Because truth can only be found one place. Truth can only be found one place. I love this. This quote is so fire. If Easter says anything to us today, it says this. You can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. Ooh. You can nail it to a cross. Wrap it in the winding sheets. Shut it up with a tomb, but it will rise. Because the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, as I begin to enter in this last little part, the truth is, I want to ask you this, what if it's true? What if everything I've read to you this morning, what if you really believe this stuff? What if you're like some of, some of us that are, you consider me crazy? Y'all are crazy. Say, Pastor, you are crazy. You believe in some dead God who resurrected. You believe in this man who was born through a virgin. You believe this man who, who was perfect. Let me ask you this. What if it is true? What if it is true? Like, what if it is true that he really is who he said he was? What if it is true that he really did what he said he would do? What if it is true that the tomb is empty? What if it is true? Because I promise you, the tomb wasn't empty and the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could come out. No, I promise you, Jesus doesn't need a door to come through. He just shows up, right? I do want to promise you that. See, the tomb was not rolled away so that Jesus would come out. The tomb was rolled away, the stone was rolled away so that we would look in. And we would look in and see that it is true. Because here's the thing, church. If the resurrection is not true, then none of it's true. If it is not true, if Jesus does not check every box he said he would check, then that means he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's not a God. And if he's not a God, he's not a Savior. If he's not a Savior, then we have a problem. But the big thing is, you need to understand this. What if the tomb is empty? What if the body can't be found? Some of you thinking, well, no, they found the body. Guys, do you think somewhere in the back of your imagination that for 2,000 years they've been looking for a body and they still haven't found one? It's because there ain't nobody. They ain't found it. Every year they got the History Channel. We might have found something. We could have possibly stumbled upon something. If, let me tell you something. If they had it, they would shout it from the rooftops. They would say it's all a lie. It's all a hoax. But the tomb stands empty today. It stands empty today. Why? Because they haven't found the body. Because there is no body. Because he took his body with him. I'm telling you, church, this is why it's such a big deal. Because let me tell you something. If that's true, let's go back to that. If that is true, if the grave is empty and the body can't be found, then you've got a big problem. You've got a big problem. Why? Because if he has power to rob the grave, if he has power to resurrect himself, and you might think, well, he wasn't really dead. They shoved a spear in his side. The Romans did, not the Jews. The Romans literally shoved a spear in his He was dead, 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 dead. 
And literally, if he was dead and resurrected in his own power, then you have a bigger issue. Why? Because if his death was true, woo, and his resurrection is true, then you have another big problem because that means his life is true. And if his life is true, then that means his words are true. And if his words are true, that means when he makes such bold statements is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he makes statements like that, that means that there is no other way to God but through Jesus. And if Jesus is the only way to God, the only thing that really matters on this side of eternity is that do you know Jesus and does Jesus know you? Because without that church, we got nothing. Let me tell you something. If the grave is full, if the body's still there, then this is all hoax. This is all make-believe. This is all a bunch of bull. Because at the end of the day, I promise you, everything in this book hangs on the resurrection. Everything. And if John 20, Luke 24, and all those gospel texts we read, if they are true, and if John 3.16 is true, then by nature, Genesis 1.1 has to be true. If that's true, then Genesis 1.1 has to be true, where it says God spoke everything into existence. And if there is a God, which there is, And if he is all these things we've talked about, if he lived, if he died, and he resurrected, then you've got a problem, and I've got a problem. Because if there is a God, then we have no way of getting to that God. And you might be like, well, I'm a good person. You're not. You might think, I'm a really good person. You're not. You know how I know you're not? I'm not. I don't stomp my toe and say, there's power in the blood. I'm saying different words. I don't always look to my wife and say, you are lovely in form and fashion, amen? I don't always say those things like I should because I am a sinner. And if there is a God and we have offended this God, you might say, how have I offended this God? You're a rebel. You are a sinner. You don't do the things God wants you to do. You don't. You sin. No, I don't sin. You know how I know you don't have to learn sin? Your kids. How dare you? Little Billy is an angel. A fallen angel. You know how I know your kids are sinners? You know how I know? You know how I know my little beautiful daughter, she's a little sinner? You know how I know? Because kids grow up, they bite people. You might think, what do you mean, Pastor? I mean, literally, when kids get mobile and you take something from them, they go, ah! And they bite you. I don't bite people and they get mad at me. I've never been like, you come here, ah. Because I don't have rabies, right? I'm not looking to bite somebody, but yet your kids bite people. Why? Because sin is not something you have to learn. Sin is something you are. You are a sinner. You don't have to learn it. I love how one theologian once said, I said a couple weeks ago, God made them so small and cute, or God made them so small so they would not be able to kill you. That's gospel truth. God made them cute so you would not kill them. But make no mistake about it, they are little sinners. Because you grow up to be big sinners. You might be like, I ain't a sinner, I ain't a sinner. Let's look at your safari history. (laughs) Frank doesn't know, but we're going to look it up. (laughs) Some things I say you don't have to answer back, amen. (laughs) Let's look at your safari history. Let's be in your brain whenever you're in Walmart and the person doesn't know how to write a check. Every time I go, I get behind that person. What number was it? 
Or you get behind the person that's got a, got a dollar bill that's seen, seen one too many Chuck E. Cheese's, amen. And they're like rubbing on their jeans, got their card in there. I always get behind those people. What's going in your head whenever that's going on? Oh, you're fine. Our baby's crying, but you're good. We're not in a hurry. Your wife, yes, we are. I promise you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you've rebelled against the king. Guess what? Because you've rebelled against the king of glory and your car alarm's going off. Because of those things, guess what? Because you have rebelled, you deserve death. The Bible says you deserve death. And what death is that? The Bible says you deserve death. Oh, my Lord, revival breaking out in the parking lot. Amen? <laughs> revival breaking out in the parking lot. Because you deserve death, Stay with me, stay with me. I know it's crazy, I know things going on. We're going to take care of it. Because of things going on and because of literally, because we deserve death, guess what? You deserve hell. You might be like, what is hell for? Hell is for people who rebel against God, who have broken God's commands. And because they've broken God's commands, that leads to, guess what? God passing judgment on them. And if they deserve judgment, it's not because, you know, God's unloving, God's unkind, it's because God is just. Because God is just, guess what? He has to punish evil. And you might be like, well, I don't agree with that. I think God should punish my evil. If God punishes your evil, he's no longer God. You become God, and you determine what good and evil is, and that is a big problem. Why? Because your good and evil is not the same as God's good and evil, and that makes you God and him, not God. So God has to be the one that determines what's good and what's bad. And so do understand, if that is the case, if God is the one who determines what's good and what's wrong, then if you rebel against him, he, deserve, he has to pass judgment. And if he passes judgment, what does that mean? It means that he literally has to send people to hell because they've rebelled against him. So you outside the blood of Christ, guess what? You deserve death, hell, and judgment. And you had no way of working your way up to God. You've got no way to work your way up to him. You've got nothing you could do that could possibly make you work up to God. And so what does that mean? That means that God had to work his way to us. You see, every other world religion believes it like this. They believe God is up here, and they believe we work our way up to God. I don't care if it's Buddhism. I don't care if it's Hinduism. I don't care if it's any other world religion you want to name. I promise you, all of them are structured the same. God is up here. We have to work our way up to him. Christianity is the only religion, the only true, true truth. Why? Because God in the Bible says, guess what? It's not possible for you to work your way up to me, so therefore I'm going to work my way down to you. So he works his way down to us through his son, Jesus. Through his son, Jesus, he works his way down. His son becomes a man. God takes on flesh. He is born through a virgin. He lives a perfect life me and you could not live. He lives that perfect life. He dies the ultimate sacrifice. Why? Because God says there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be something that is paid so you can get back in relationship with me. Jesus pays that debt. That's why he says it is finished. So the cross proves salvation is real. The cross proves salvation has been accepted. But you might be, why did he resurrect? See, the cross doesn't prove he's God. The cross proves that he's man. The resurrection proves that he is God. The resurrection proves that God has been satisfied. The resurrection proves that there is now a way for us to get to God through Christ, not through ourselves, but through a relationship with Jesus. Because if all that is true, church, then if you don't know him, you won't make it there. You might be like, well, I, I'm banking on my works. 
Your works won't get you there. I'm banking on baptism. I wish baptism saved people. I'd get a fire truck, just pray people. It doesn't save people. Because I'm telling you, the only way you can get through the Father is through the Son. That's the only way. Because if it is true, it changes everything. You see, there are two options in life. As I begin to close here, I know we've had a wild, crazy service. <laughs> All kinds of stuff going on. But if it is true, it changes everything. Why? Because if you die, you will stand before a righteous, holy God. If you've got nothing to plead, you say, I've got my good works, I've got my good person, I, you know, I vote a Republican, I vote a Democrat, you might be like, I'm a U.S. citizen. It's never going to amount to anything in front of a holy, righteous God. Because the only thing I'm going to be able to say is like the thief on the cross said. How'd you get here? The man in the middle said I could come. Only thing I'll be able to claim when I get to glory is, guess what? How did you get here? Jesus said I could come. I know Jesus. Sir, I wish to see Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, I can just get saved, say my little sinner's prayer, and I can go live wild. Got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell no more because I said a prayer. The Bible says you will probably end up in hell just the same. Because it's not a prayer that saves you. It's not a religion that saves you. It's a relationship that saves you. And when you get in a new relationship, guess what? It changes every other relationship. It changes every other relationship. And so what I mean by that is it changes every relationship. Where, where you get in a relationship with Christ, it changes your relationship with sin, it changes your relationship with the world, it changes your relationship with each other. It's only through Christ that I'm able to love my neighbor. It's only through Christ that I'm able to love my wife. It's only through Christ that I'm able to do anything good at all. Why? Because it's only through his power I'm able to do it. I want you to truly, truly understand that, that it's only through Christ we can do anything at all. And so if Christ saves you, you know what he's going to do? I'm wrapping up. I promise I'm done. I am. Don't laugh. I'm being serious. If Christ can save you, he can change you. You might say, well, God hadn't changed me. You didn't meet God. Because God changes everybody he meets. He does it time and time again. How do you know? The disciples, when he was crucified, were running for their lives. They were looking on southwest.com, fastest plane flight out of Jerusalem. But yet a couple weeks later, after they'd seen the resurrected king, you know what they're doing? they standing up in the very city that crucified him, saying, He came back! And the only thing that persuade 11 men to risk their lives is if you've seen somebody overcome the grave. People will live for a lie, but they won't die for one. And these men all died for the truth because they believed it. Because what if it is true? If it is true, then you just heard the good news.